Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Monday, April 10th, 2023, the 810th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So I hope you all had a lovely Easter weekend, got to eat some food with some family, got to spend some time celebrating or reflecting. But here we find ourselves on yet another Monday, and it's time to get down to business. So let's start by discussing one of the latest developments in the 
public communications, technology, social media realm. And I'm talking about Substack's new feature, Substack Notes, and the interplay between Substack and Twitter. Now, on Friday afternoon, just a little while after I finished the podcast, a brand new controversy developed over on Twitter when Matt Taibbi, the mostly progressive independent journalist who has been covering the Twitter files and the censorship industrial complex, as he now calls it, took to Twitter to say this, of all things, I learned earlier today that Substack links were being blocked on this platform. When I asked why, I was told it's a dispute over the new Substack Notes platform. Since sharing links to my articles is a primary reason I come to this platform, I was alarmed and asked what was going on. I was given the option of posting articles on Twitter instead. I'm obviously staying at Substack and will be moving to Substack Notes next week. So Matt Taibbi, the dude that's doing the Twitter files, He's had a lot of interplay with Elon Musk. Matt Taibbi's Twitter account has grown leaps and bounds as a result. I think Twitter files number one within one day, his account had gone from something like 750,000 followers to like 1.5 million. His growth immediately skyrocketed and he has continued to be a prominent figure on that platform now at 1.8 million followers. And as you might know, if you're on Twitter, they extended the option for people to get themselves verified with the little blue check mark through Twitter blue. And if you do that, it's not just the little blue check mark. They open up various features to you. You can write long article length posts and Twitter is trying to develop means for monetization so that people can support creators on that platform in the same way that they might on Substack. Substack obviously has a brand and a feel that more resembles the format that people are accustomed to when reading news articles. It has the look and feel of a professional journalism website, whereas Twitter, when you have a long post or a long article, it looks like every other tweet. And unless someone expands it, it doesn't look like anything exceptional. It just looks like another tweet among other tweets. So it's relatively obvious why someone like Matt Taibbi wouldn't want to make Twitter their primary platform for their writing and, you know, journalism, whatever that word means now. It's not really a parallel sort of platform and people are hesitant to use it in that way. Makes complete and total sense. Now, Twitter for a while, you know, since Elon took over, has said that they are not going to make Twitter some sort of hub where people can consistently link to their work on outside sites, trying to move people off of Twitter and say what you will about that policy. It's a bit silly. It's a bit petty, but that's the direction they've decided to go in. It has been very clear for a while that Substack links are deprioritized. And now it's gotten to the point where people were noticing that the Substack links were being completely hidden. Brett Weinstein picked up on Taibbi's post and wrote, Elon Musk, you know that thing where the left eats its own? We mustn't let that happen to the emerging Western values slash free speech coalition. Many of us who have backed your Twitter play and taken substantial heat for it are thrown by this move. The public square isn't a monopoly. And Brett Weinstein, despite his relative intelligence and good nature, is 
still obviously mostly asleep. Much of this does not make sense. There is no pro-Western values, pro-free speech movement on the left. They could have sprung up at any point in the last three years and tried to protect speech in this country. And they didn't do it because the free speech restrictions weren't affecting them by and large. And again, I understand that Taibbi and Weinstein are better than your average brain dead communist on Twitter. But these are not people putting up a principled fight on an important issue. They're people that were happy to go along with the system until it began affecting them. And again, I can be even more charitable and say that's how it works for pretty much everybody. The problems are out there until it reaches your doorstep. You don't have the incentive to do something about it, especially if you're trapped in the normie sphere, especially if you're trapped in the false reality and your life is not guided in any substantial way by principles. The post also exhibits the sort of self-victimization that is common on the left Weinstein complaining that he has taken substantial heat for backing Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. Like, honestly, who gives a shit? That is what's hurting your feelings. Child-brained communists getting mad about your support for Elon Musk. That's not taking substantial heat. That's being tweeted at by morons. And again, this isn't some personal affront on Brett Weinstein, who I think is maybe more good than bad. But the emotionality of all this is rather silly. Regardless, Elon Musk responds, one, Substack links were never blocked. Matt's statement is false. Two, Substack was trying to download a massive portion of the Twitter database to bootstrap their Twitter clone. So their IP address is obviously untrusted. Three, Turns out Matt is slash was an employee of Substack. Amusingly, Elon Musk's post was fact checked by community notes on Twitter that said regarding the first claim, Substack links themselves may not have been blocked, but interactions likes, tweets and replies with tweets containing Substack links were definitely blocked. Preventing engagement with tweets will drastically limit their exposure. So fine, good, whatever. Substack links have always been suppressed on Twitter. Again, Twitter's reemergence as a free speech platform, the way Elon markets it to the public, is not really true. It has changed a little bit in certain ways, but is not a free speech platform. People are still banned. People are still censored. People still get shadow banned and accounts are messed with all the time. Just within the last couple of weeks, for months, my normal rate of adding followers is like a hundred followers a day. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it drops to 10 followers a day for eight or nine days within the last few weeks before going right back to the hundred follower a day pace. That is not remotely natural. So Chris Best, who runs Substack, responded to all of this on Substack Notes, Substack's new feature that I'll talk about in just a second. And he wrote, none of this is true. Number one, Substack links have obviously been severely throttled on Twitter. Anyone using the product can see this. Two, 
We have used the Twitter API for years to help writers. We believe we're in compliance with the terms, but if they have any specific concerns, we would love to know about them. We'd be happy to address any issues. Number three, Matt Taibbi is not and has never been an employee of Substack. He writes a Substack and gets paid directly by his readers. That writers making money seems to be such a strange concept is telling. This is very frustrating. It's one thing to mess with Substack, but quite another to treat writers this way. And the upshot of all this is that the issue was resolved. Chris Best wrote this on notes. We're glad to see that the suppression of Substack publications on Twitter appears to be over. This is the right move for writers who deserve the freedom to share their work. We believe that Twitter and Substack can continue to coexist and complement each other. We look forward to making Substack notes available soon, but we expect it to be a new kind of place within a subscription network, not a replacement for existing social networks. So great. Let's talk about Substack notes. Substack has launched the beta trial of Substack notes, which is a feature within the Substack platform that in many ways resembles the functionality of Twitter. It is a social media style feed that populates within the Substack notes platform and people can write short messages and interact with one another. I imagine they can probably write really long messages too, but I haven't experimented with that. The point is Substack is launching a new product as part of Substack, Substack notes. Now here's the thing. A lot of people got really upset at Elon Musk for suppressing Substack links on Twitter for what amounts to a day or so in the public's mind. And very likely, though you can't prove it much longer than that, a few months now, some suppression of the Substack thing. Now, call me crazy, but I don't think that there's any way it's a coincidence that all of this happened right before Substack was about to launch its new product. And a lot of people take the surface interpretation of that. They see Elon Musk suppressing Substack in some way, and they think, A, Elon Musk hates free speech, and B, Elon Musk is trying to destroy his competition before it can get out of the gates. He's got to protect his $44 billion investment. You have to remember, Elon Musk was able to purchase the most powerful information weapon in the history of the world for $44 billion. Sure, it can influence the opinions and behaviors of people all over the entire world, but it's for sale for $44 billion. And Elon said the price is right. Let's scoop that up. Now, I have never believed that from day one, which is why I've been saying since the announcement of Elon's potential purchase of Twitter, that that's not what's happening. Elon Musk was able to acquire, in some sense, the most powerful information weapon in the history of the world, something that by any standard would obviously be priceless. But he bought it for $44 billion. But you see, the thing is, you can't just acquire the enemy's information weapon for $44 billion, no matter what the stock market says about its valuation or the value of the advertisement money coming into the platform. That's not what Twitter's real value is. Twitter's real value is being able to influence the behavior of people, the behavior of governments, 
They're able to support narratives that underlie election fraud worldwide. They're able to influence the behavior of entire markets all at the same time. A literally priceless information weapon, a priceless information weapon cannot be purchased for $44 billion. It can only be taken. And so you have to suspect that either they just switched the face of Twitter to Elon Musk on the regime side of things, or the information weapon was taken from the regime. And again, Elon Musk is just the face of it. I only believe that Elon Musk was the face of it in either one of those scenarios. Elon Musk remains a wild card because we can't determine which of those scenarios is correct, but it is well worth it to look beyond the superficial surface level understanding of what we've been told about the purchase of Twitter and about Elon Musk's role in the new Twitter. So since Elon Musk remains a wild card, let's leave Elon Musk aside and just think about outcomes of all this. While most people are using this situation to make the argument that Elon Musk is good or Elon Musk is bad or that Substack should be censored or whatever else, let's not miss what's actually happening here based on the outcome. And what is the outcome? The outcome is that this has been the single best piece of advertising and marketing that Substack could ever possibly get. The most popular tweeter in the entire Twitterverse, the world's richest man, and someone who, like Donald Trump, like Kanye West, and maybe a handful of other people in this world, can entirely shift the narrative to themselves and whatever subject they would like to discuss at any given point on any given day. That guy created a public controversy with the Substack platform as they're about to launch a new product that potentially can compete with Twitter. Now, why in the world would Elon Musk do that? Does anyone imagine that Elon Musk doesn't understand the Streisand effect where the attempt to protect something from full public knowledge is what makes the thing achieve full public knowledge? Elon Musk definitely understands that. Is Elon Musk a bad businessman? Is he an idiot? Is he a moron? Does he not think about the consequences of his actions? I think we'd have to say no to that. So if you're smart and you're thoughtful and you're good at business and you understand the Streisand effect, why would you do something like this? If your intent is to shut down Substack or harm Substack in some way. Because the outcome is exactly the opposite of what people imagine Elon Musk's goal actually is. The outcome is that Substack just got the best advertising they could ever possibly dream of. This controversy basically told the world Substack is the real free speech platform and now it can do some version of what Twitter does. And for most people, this will not be the first time they've encountered this idea. This is going to cement that idea in their minds. Of course, people know that Twitter is not a free speech platform. It's never been a free speech platform and certainly not 
in the last three years, basically everyone has understood that Twitter censored the Hunter Biden laptop, facts about COVID, facts about the vaccines, facts about the election, facts about the insurrection. Everybody knows Twitter censored those subjects. And throughout that time, people on Substack were allowed to discuss whatever they wanted. So Elon Musk has made this present in everyone's minds. There is a new product on Substack that does many of the things that Twitter does, except it is focused on free speech. And you can see that while we try to suppress it. I would argue that it is not possible for Substack to have gotten better advertisement for their new product than what was done by Elon Musk over the weekend. Did that happen by accident? Well, I kind of doubt it. So on Saturday, I get an email from Substack as a person who is a content creator on that platform, a consistent content creator. And the email invited me to test out the new beta trial version of Substack Notes. And so, of course, I did it. I want to know what's the new speech landscape that we can engage in right now. And so my priorities when I go on to a new platform are, let's see how this thing works. Let's see how to make this platform the most useful for my personal message and the America first message at large. And let's see if they will restrict me in any way. I want to immediately establish the furthest bounds of the Overton window on that platform. And hopefully there is no bound. Hopefully it is just unlimited free speech and people who like the speech or dislike the speech can engage with it as they see fit. Everybody is on an even playing field. And if my ideas are good, then they will succeed. If my ideas are bad, then someone else's ideas succeed. And the best way to do that is to immediately come in a little hot and say things that one side is really going to like because they don't see them in other places like Twitter. I mean, it's strange to me that people don't understand what I'm doing with my Twitter account. I am trying to push the envelope all the time so that other people who agree with me and don't say publicly the things I say publicly can see that it's actually okay to say them and that you're not immediately going to have your life destroyed for saying something mildly controversial. And so I interacted a bit with the crew that runs the Substack platform, gave some of my feedback on what might be useful on Substack generally and on the notes product in particular. I copy and pasted some of my ideas from Twitter over to Substack. I mean, Twitter is my sounding board. I'm trying to see what ideas people respond to. Getting my ideas out there as clearly and directly as I can. That's the usefulness of all these platforms to me. And so I want to use Substack the same way. And then, of course, I wanted to really test the waters and see what sort of reactions I could get from the Substack community. Because Substack is not just people like me or the other Badlands creators or people like Matt Taibbi, serious journalists like Seymour Hirsch, etc. There are plenty of blue and on communists over on that platform trying to profit off the followings they establish on other platforms. And while I find their ideas offensive and evil and preposterously stupid, I'm still happy that they're able to go and do that. And if people want to waste their money supporting these obvious morons and shills, 
That is their option. That's something they're just allowed to do. But on the Substack platform, in the notes platform, especially once it's open to the public, they're not going to have the support of the social credit they've built up on Twitter over the years, the size of their following, the legacy blue check mark, their Twitter fame. Nor do they have the option of using the algorithm to make sure that they don't ever have to see anything that disagrees with them. They've been operating inside that bubble, inside that censored space, and the feedback loop that they are responsive to doesn't let in outside ideas. So they don't get genuine negative feedback to much of anything they post. Many of them either protect their tweets so that people who can't follow them never even see the tweets, and many others will prevent replies to their tweets so that they never have to get any negative feedback. They don't have that option in a beta test of Substack's notes platform. Their posts exist right alongside my posts, and it's my idea against their idea. We're on an even playing field. If people like my ideas better than their ideas, well, hey, I win. And this is something that they hate. It's something that they're not accustomed to. It is something that strikes a very deep fear in them. And so I wanted to see if it was possible for me to exploit that. And it turns out it is. I wrote on Saturday, how are liberals going to enforce evil and nonsensical ideas on here without the aid of an algorithm and false status symbols? Pretty simple. How are you going to enforce your speech codes on everybody else when you can't look to an authority and you can't cheat the system in order to suppress all opposing ideas. And I got some responses. This is Ken Klippenstein from Pierre Omidyar's The Intercept. He wrote in a whining voice, I'm sure, you're killing the vibe, man. And I wrote, oh, you guys think you can enforce behavioral codes everywhere? Interesting. Just block me and move on. And I haven't heard back from him. Parker Malloy, who is some radical trans activist, wrote, don't do this here, man. Come on. And I said, you all need to make another platform, your faux intellectual safe space, your years of having everyone censored wasn't enough. And she wrote, there are enough battlefields on the Internet. Not sure why anyone would be eager to create more, but you do you take care. And so I wrote. Easy to say that when you're on the side that uses censorship and an algorithm to win on those platforms. Good luck with it. Some deranged communist who I'd never heard of named Daniel Pinchbeck wrote, so combative. Evil is a quite big word for a little note. And I wrote, what do you call what they're doing? Would you like to explain how it isn't evil? Ignorance is not an excuse. He wrote back, it seems there is a lot of evil going around then. Do you consider banning abortions and allowing for young people to have access to assault rifles to be evil also? I haven't looked at your site, so I don't know your political slant. I am not a fan of either wing in the U.S., but I do think liberals are still, on balance, less horrible. I responded, three plus years since COVID started and you haven't rethought anything at all, huh? Some mindless drone named Garrett Bucks wrote, hey, Super aggro way to initiate a new space. Anyway, 
Want to see a pretty rad picture I took of my kids and my niece in a psychedelic light tunnel at the Montreal Science Center? And I mean, why even respond to that? I don't know how these people honestly consider themselves adults. It's it's hard to understand. I, I don't get it. But the best one was this. Some communist named Jordan Ole wrote, are you okay? And I said, me, I'm having a blast. Are you going to be okay with a social platform that isn't a dystopian communist safe space where everyone takes you all seriously because they have no choice? He wrote, you seem to be the only one here worried about it. And I said, I just asked how you all would protect your intellectual safe space. And you responded by trying to shame me, thus answering my question. Nice one. And that's exactly right. I said the things that I said, which are the things that I say. And I know that they're very inflammatory to very sensitive people. Oh, the bad man is saying the no, no words again. I get it. I'm a very, very bad man. But the question is how they would respond, how they would initiate a new version of their speech codes, of their codes of conduct. How would they establish the bounds of the party of false decorum on Substack notes? And of course, they did it by shame. Now, why would they use that tactic? Well, because they're child brains and they interpret the world as children do. Someone does something that they've been told that they agree is breaking the rules and they immediately look to an authority figure to fix it. If there is no authority figure around to fix it, then they will try to recruit other people and launch a shame campaign to get the rule breaking behavior to stop. Now they do not understand that outside of the party of false decorum, no one cares about their shame campaigns. Least of all me. It is not my goal to have blue and non-communists think that I'm nice and cool and fun to discuss things with on the internet. I have no interest whatsoever in speaking to these people, in changing their minds. None of it. All I have interest in, in terms of interactions with these people, is turning their game right back around on them. I want to reduce the social credit required of them taking the stances they take, saying the things they say, acting the way they act to zero. I want to do whatever I can to remove the incentive structure that encourages them to say these types of things completely. The things these people say are completely detached from reality. There is no factual basis for them. They are actually embarrassing things to say. And these people would probably realize that if they hadn't existed inside that Twitter bubble for the past few years where everything is censored and they don't get genuine feedback. They might have corrected course by now if it weren't for that, but they weren't interested in correcting course. They were interested in profiting from a system designed to incentivize them to be the deranged communists they are. I also want them to know if they are going to come at me the way they go after other people on Twitter who are still very committed to remaining in the party of false decorum. It's not going to work on me. I am going to try to punish them 
to the maximum degree and do that by letting them speak themselves into a corner and pointing it out for everyone, as I did with Jordan all. And the thing is, these people aren't smart. They're only popular on Twitter because they will relentlessly say the things they are incentivized to say. And those incentives, whether directly or indirectly, come down from the regime. Some of them are paid directly for posting. Some of them have endorsements for their posting from regime affiliated companies. Some of them book speaking gigs with speaking fees from regime related organizations like colleges, for instance. And some of them get hired to produce content for regime related websites and they profit that way. Regardless of the incentive structure, they are clearly incentivized, even if it's just with additional intention. They are incentivized to say the things they say, act the way they act, do the things they do. That does not work in a free market of ideas. And I wanted that to be right out on the table from day one. I think it was a successful experiment. I also had the wonderful experience of tying the Krasensteins in knots on Substack notes. So I look forward to when everybody is allowed to join the platform and begin weighing in on all of these terrible ideas directly to these people's faces all the time. Now you can do it politely. You can do it however you like. Substack has this air of being a highbrow website, and that's nice. That's fun, but it doesn't have to be that way. If you don't want to ruin that highbrow atmosphere, simply ask them over and over again. You don't really believe that, do you? Or just say, hey, that's utter nonsense. Or you can just laugh at them. That's the thing they hate the most. They want to be taken so seriously because they take themselves seriously. And they think they are entitled to being taken seriously by everyone else because of the status they imagine they've attained on these other social media platforms. And as you might suspect, they want to cement and formalize the bounds of their little sandbox on Substack notes. This is an idea that's been tossed around on there. A guy named Jesse J. Anderson posted this this morning. Substack notes is really interesting right now. With everyone here being a Substack writer, it's sort of like a private party for writers. I wonder how different it'll feel once it goes public and everyone can join. I'd still love some version of a writer's room like we have right now when notes goes wide, where we can all still hang out and talk shop. Okay, dork. The pretension here is unbelievable, and it is noticed by everyone, even the people who like it. This woman named Ale Garatoni wrote, yeah, it could sound elitist, but at the same time, it could be a place for writers that use it professionally, not only as a hobby or as a reading platform, a place where we could share and learn the business side, something that is not the goal of most people. But I'm not sure just thinking out loud with you. And naturally, I pointed out that these people always want to find a way to exclude normal people from every realm of life. And if you think I'm overstating it, I can promise you as someone who spent 18 and a half years in the heart of Hollywood, one of the most elitist cultures that could ever be imagined, 
I am not overstating it at all. It is dead on accurate. The more exclusive the group, the more these sorts of people want to be in it. And then they want to maintain the exclusivity. They are happy to bring their sorts of people along with them, but they never want to have it be the sort of thing where normal people can interact with them and tell them they're wrong. This is a factor of credentialism. It is a factor of status. It is a factor of the party of false decorum. They think that they are on a certain level and that the beliefs and opinions and responses from people who are lower down than them simply don't matter at all. And so they like to create spaces where they never have to engage normal people. Now, if Substack maintains the commitment to free speech that they have promoted over the past few years, then Substack Notes may well be a wonderful platform. It might end up being my main social media platform. I could see that. And if that happens for other people and the Substack community becomes its own community where the writers of good content actually rise up in the public understanding in the free and open marketplace of ideas and people are primarily consuming Substack content rather than mainstream media content, which is constantly retweeted by people on Twitter because they're the ones creating it, well, then the mainstream media takes a clear and obvious hit. Now, obviously, I don't know if Substack Notes has that potential two days in, but if it does and if it reaches that potential, that is a major change in the media landscape. And regardless of whether or not he intended it. Elon Musk has spent the weekend advertising all of it. So let's stay with the discussion of influence on social media for just a bit longer. This is from yesterday in Axios. Biden's digital strategy, an army of influencers. President Biden's not yet official bid for reelection will lean on hundreds of social media influencers who will tout Biden's record and soon may have their own briefing room at the White House, Axios has learned. The move aims to boost Biden's standing among young voters who are crucial to Democrats' success in elections and to potentially counter former President Trump's massive social media following if he's the GOP nominee in 2024. Wait a second. Donald Trump is that powerful on social media, even despite being banned on the platform? Even despite all the censorship, man, how is Donald Trump so powerful on social media? Oh, it's because he's so much more popular than every other politician, most particularly the man who pretends he received 81 million real legal American votes. Crazy how that works, isn't it? Biden's digital strategy team will connect with influencers across the nation to target those who may not follow the White House or Democratic Party on social media or who have tuned out mainstream media altogether. Four Biden digital staffers are focused on influencers and independent content creators. The staffers officially work for the White House, not Biden's campaign, but reaching young and suburban voters is clearly a priority. Now, wait a second. Who funds the White House? Oh, wait, taxpayers. So taxpayers are going to pay the White House to propagandize them. And I talked about this with CanCon on Badlands Daily this morning. 
This is exactly what we've been seeing for years now, and people still haven't totally grasped what it is. In 2020, the COVID relief packages had money set aside for public awareness campaigns and public outreach. That's taxpayer money, or more likely just fiat regime bucks, numbers that they make up out of nowhere, and then just call U.S. taxpayer money. It doesn't really matter. If it's not coming directly out of our pockets, it is still our labor being used as collateral for the creation of all those new numbers. So one way or another, it's us paying for it. So they spread that money out to the states. The states hire social media influencers, whether they're celebrities or athletes, actors, musicians, whatever, or just your local pastor or community leaders or micro influencers. They have all sorts of strategies. They want to make sure Everyone out there gets their message in a way that is more likely to convince them not only that the message is true, but that everyone like them believes it and believing anything other than that message is bad. As someone who used to be a partner at a social media management company in Los Angeles that deals with celebrities and endorsements and outreach campaigns, I know how this works. And it's not hard to recognize it when it's happening. You might remember in 2020 and 2021, social media influencers telling you to wear a mask, telling you to stay home, advertising different services that can drop products off at your house, whether it's food, something else you need, whatever it is, you don't need to leave home. We have a regime connected company ready to fulfill all your needs so that you can stay safe and keep other people safe. They advertise BLM. They advertise climate change initiatives. They advertise the Mark Zuckerberg drop boxes where you can place your very real, very safe, very secure mail-in ballot. If the mailbox is farther away somehow than the drop box, they pretended you have to do all that for COVID. They hired an army of celebrities and influencers to disseminate these messages. Those people were paid by government and government connected organizations with your taxpayers. Now they have brought that model right into the illegitimate White House. Young voters age 18 to 29 preferred Biden over Trump by a 26 point margin in 2020 and Democrats over Republicans by 28 points in the 2022 midterms, at least according to their statistics that are made up of absolutely nothing. A measure of the importance Team Biden is placing on its digital strategy. Rob Flaherty, who leads the effort, has been named assistant to the president, the same rank as the White House communications director and press secretary. What they're saying we're trying to reach young people, but also moms who use different platforms to get information and climate activists and people whose main way of getting information is digital, said Jen O'Malley Dillon, White House Deputy Chief of Staff. Well, she sounds brilliant. Hundreds of unpaid and like minded content creators are working with Biden's White House. Got it? Unpaid. But like minded, they're all doing it of their own initiative. And for that, they get direct access to the White House 
And you got to remember they're unpaid, except in all the other ways they can get paid through endorsements and the opening up of new opportunities, new job offers. Hey, who doesn't want the social media influencer who the White House trusts to disseminate their information? These are some of the most legitimate people you could ever possibly find. Just remember, they're unpaid. And that's supposed to make you forget that you're still paying for the White House to guide them and communicate with them and develop programs centered around them to propagandize you. But just remember, the social media influencers themselves are just unpaid and like-minded. And who are some of these people? Harry Sisson, a 20-year-old NYU student who breaks down the day's news on TikTok. And what he does is scream at his phone about issues he's clueless on. Boston College professor Heather Cox Richardson, who has a widely read Substack and huge Twitter following. Oh, very serious, very intellectual. And Vivian too, a former trader who discusses financial topics in short clips on TikTok and Instagram. Isn't it great that we have an illegitimate administration so tuned in to who the best propagandists online are? A dedicated White House briefing space for influencers to meet in person or by remote would be unprecedented and a sign that the traditional press briefing room no longer would be the administration's only messaging center. It would also give some influencers more consistent access to the president. Oh, that's good. We actually asked the White House, when are we going to get press briefing passes, said Sisson, who has 660,000 followers on TikTok. They were actually very responsive to it, he said, of administration officials' reaction to the suggestion by some of the two dozen influencers who attended a State of the Union watch party at the White House. The result? The administration is moving toward giving influencers their own briefing room in the White House. And what are they pretending this is? This is a state-sponsored, state-run PSYOP against the American people. And I noted on Twitter over the weekend, it is a little ridiculous that people are still out there being like, Q is a PSYOP and anyone who's ever looked at it has fallen for the PSYOP. Like, okay, man, everybody who looks at it knows it's a PSYOP. Got it. I wrote 25,000 words about the PSYOP, arguing that all that matters when you know something is a PSYOP is what it actually produces in the world. And what it has produced in the world is probably the greatest information operation in the history of mankind and the most effective. And it has woken up tens of millions of people around the world and created a decentralized community of researchers that blows the mainstream media out of the water in any aspect. And there are other elements of the truth community doing the same thing, by the way. It's not solely reliant on Q, although if you are in tune with how the information stream flows and you're able to locate the beginning of it, it starts somewhere just past Q. You can ignore Q all you want. You can be scared of Q. You can think it's stupid. I don't care what you think of it. 
you should recognize that the information you receive that contradicts the mainstream media very likely comes initially from that Q community or the broader truth community and ends up to you somewhere downstream. Now, put that in comparison to what normal people out there believe. They're saying that you have fallen victim to a psyop if you have looked at the Q posts or don't think Q is stupid. That's the only bar that has to be crossed. You're not willing to go out and say it's stupid and evil and dangerous and only dumb people would fall for it. Anything more complimentary of Q beyond that, you are a crazy lunatic who's fallen for a psyop. All the people saying that have grown up consuming mainstream culture and mainstream media throughout their entire lives. Every single bit of that has been a psyop against the American people, but they don't recognize that they have fallen for the psyop that we know for a fact is run by the regime. And we know for a fact is evil and false. In the tweet I wrote, the mainstream media psyop has turned people into self-obsessed consumers so weak and ignorant they will buy what they're told to buy, act how they're told to act, inject what they're told to inject, and hate who they're told to hate. They say they do this not out of belief or principle, but to model good behavior for us. That's the cumulative result of their psyop, and they think Q is the big problem? One produces an open-minded, well-intentioned, massive group of researchers who want to understand all the things they've been convinced they should turn a blind eye to over the course of their lives. And the other one has you completely reliant on the government and corporations to fulfill all your needs, including emotionally and spiritually. If you're concerned about dangerous regime psyops and you're focused on Q, you have fallen victim to a dangerous regime psyop. And I don't need to prove it to you. You can draw this information from the real world anytime you want. And that's why you already know it's true. So the Axios article goes through a couple of instances where Biden has employed this social media strategy before, and then they go on and say the White House wants to work with influencers who have local audiences when Biden travels to their state, just as its regional team has built relationships with local media outlets. Biden's followings on social media don't compare with Trump's, especially on YouTube and Facebook. Biden's strategy is aimed more at platforms favored by younger voters, such as Instagram and TikTok. The administration has courted support on TikTok, even as it has called for the platform to be sold or else risk being banned in the U.S. because of its owner's ties to China's government. Now, the hilarious thing about all of this is that their social media strategies absolutely do not work, just like everything else they attempt. And I was on a show last week with Patel Patriot and Burning Bright, and I suggested that I think what we're seeing right now is basically like Chinese finger cuffs. I'm not sure if you're familiar with those, but it's that old paper toy that you stick a finger into on both sides. And then as you pull your fingers away, 
the Chinese finger cuffs actually get tighter. They make it impossible for you to extract your fingers by pulling them apart from one another. It's the idea that the expected successful strategy actually has the opposite reaction and makes the problem worse. And we can see this phenomenon repeating over and over and over again with everything the illegitimate administration does. And a perfect example of this is not only the illegitimate administration's use of these social media influencers in the past, but we can also see it with the corporations who are using these social media influencers and most particularly that creepy little guy, Dylan Mulvaney, who pretends to be a young girl. Now, I've said many times, I don't think it's worth spending nearly the amount of time that we end up spending discussing these trans issues. It is obvious to virtually everyone what the right answer is. Men cannot be women. Women cannot be men. It doesn't matter what someone identifies as. It matters what they are. And no one else should be forced to affirm their delusions and coddle their mental illnesses. Obviously, none of that should ever be projected onto children, and we should create a society where that never happens. To the extent it already happens, to the extent we have adults lopping off the genitals of children, all of that needs to be done away with and stopped as fast as possible. But here's the thing. That is a lower order problem in relation to issues like election fraud that end up getting ignored entirely. Fix election fraud, you fix everything. You get the people to choose their own representatives. Those representatives go into office with a mandate from the people to represent the people. And decisions like this would never happen because with real elections, there would be a penalty to pay. And people who institute these sorts of rules and laws and regulations, etc., would never be elected again. But we can't have that because we don't have free and fair, legitimate elections. So let's forget the trans aspect for a second and focus on what is actually going on here at a regime level. The New York Times published this on Friday. Inside the CEI system, pushing brands to endorse celebs like Dylan Mulvaney. Executives at companies like Nike, Anheuser-Busch, and Kate Spade, whose brand endorsements have turned controversial trans influencer Dylan Mulvaney into today's woke it girl, aren't just virtue signaling. They're handing out lucrative deals to what were once considered fringe celebrities because they have to, or risk failing an all-important social credit score that could make or break their businesses. At stake is their Corporate Equality Index, or CEI score, which is overseen by the Human Rights Campaign, the largest LGBTQ political lobbying group in the world. HRC, which has received millions from George Soros's Open Society Foundation, among others, issues report cards for America's biggest corporations via the CEI, awarding or subtracting points for how well companies adhere to what HRC calls its ratings criteria. Businesses that attain the maximum hundred total points earn the coveted title Best Place to Work for LGBTQ Equality. 15 of the top 20 Fortune-ranked companies received 100% ratings last year, according to HRC data. More than 840 U.S. companies racked up high CEI scores, according to the latest report. 
the HRC, which was formed in 1980 and started the CEI in 2002, is led by Kelly Robinson, who was named as president in 2022 and worked as a political organizer for Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign. So you can thank Barack Obama and his fellow communists for the creation of Dylan Mulvaney. The HRC lists five major rating criteria, each with its own lengthy subsets for companies to gain or lose CEI points. And here are their criteria. Woke rating. Advocacy group Human Rights Campaign introduced the 100-point Corporate Equality Index to score companies on their quote-unquote inclusiveness. Workforce protections. You can get a maximum of five points. No discrimination for employment for sexual orientation or gender identity. Inclusive benefits. 50 points possible. Criteria here includes providing health care for same-sex couples. So you have to hire a bunch of LGBTQ people to show that you're not discriminating against sexual orientation, and then you have to give them benefits on the basis that they are LGBTQ. Number three, supporting an inclusive culture, 25 points possible, including gender-neutral dress codes and trans-inclusive restroom and facilities policy. So essentially you encourage women to dress like men because men won't generally dress like women, although I'm sure some take advantage of these policies. And you do this so that trans people can dress however they want and everyone just plays pretend. And you've got to let men into women's restrooms. It's strange, isn't it, that these companies are struggling so much? Number four, corporate social responsibility, 20 points possible. Marketing or advertising to LGBTQ consumers, which would include Nike and Bud Light's use of transgender spokesperson Dylan Mulvaney. So you have to promote your brand and advertise your brand as LGBTQ inclusive by literally including them in your marketing. And this brings us back to what we were talking about in the Hollywood scene last week on Friday's episode, the market conditions don't dictate how your business proceeds. It's only about whether or not you're achieving these certain markers to let everybody know that you're on the right side of these issues. Now, why can businesses afford to do that? Why can they avoid their fiduciary responsibility to their customers? Well, going along with the regime agenda brings in the regime bucks. So the consumers and the market demands get cut out of the picture entirely. And the only purpose for the company is to serve the agenda of the regime. Isn't that incredible? What do you call it when markets are fully detached from businesses who then just serve the state? Is there something different between that situation and communism or that situation and classically defined fascism? Not the ridiculous notions about fascism now, but the real definition, the collusion of corporations and the state to subjugate the citizenry. This is proof right here that the market is detached and corporations are serving the regime. Number five, responsible citizenship. And you can lose 25 points here. Points deducted if a company gives money, quote, 
to organizations whose primary mission includes advocacy against LGBTQ equality, which is not defined, but could include Christian groups. So not only do the companies have to support this one political ideology, the agenda of the regime, they cannot support any organizations that go against the agenda of the regime. And this stuff, by the way, is included in the code of conduct for the World Economic Forum partners. And it turns out, of course, that organizations like Anheuser-Busch, including actually Anheuser-Busch, are World Economic Forum partners. And you can find the entire list of them by going to weforum.org and going to their partners page. The Post article notes that this isn't some passive score that is just given out. HRC sends representatives to corporations every year telling them what kind of stuff they have to make visible at the company. They give them a list of demands, and if they don't follow through, there's a threat that you won't keep your CEI score. And that comes from James Lindsay, who I imagine you're mostly all familiar with. The CEI is a lesser-known part of the burgeoning ESG ethical investing movement, increasingly pushed by the country's top three investment firms. ESG funds invest in companies that oppose fossil fuels, push for unionization, and stress racial and gender equity over merit in hiring and board selection. As a result, some American CEOs are more concerned about pleasing BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street Bank who are among the top shareholders of most American publicly traded corporations, including Nike, Anheuser-Busch, and Kate Spade, than they are about irritating conservatives, numerous sources told The Post. And this is not about irritating conservatives, although it certainly does. This is about how they are serving only those entities and ignoring completely actual market conditions and consumer response. You can only do that when you don't care about the money coming in from consumers because the money coming in from the people who tell you what to do is prioritized in every single way. Eventually, you simply come to realize that Anheuser-Busch is just the beer provider of the state. And in our you will own nothing and be happy about it future, Bud Light, Anheuser-Busch products will be the ones that you can buy with your cashless central bank digital currency that they can turn on and turn off whenever they want. You won't think that it is just U.S. government beer, but it is U.S. government beer, or more accurately, it's regime beer, and you can use your regime points to purchase the regime's beer. And we don't even need to call it money anymore. You just get social credit points on your little app and you can redeem your social credit points for regime beer. Doesn't that sound like luxury? Skipping down in the article, the big fund managers like BlackRock all embrace this ESG orthodoxy in how they apply pressure to top corporate management teams and boards, and they determine in many cases executive compensation and bonuses and who gets reelected or reappointed to boards. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, who is running for president as a Republican and authored Woke Inc. Inside America's Social Justice Scam, told The Post, they can make it very difficult for you if you don't abide by their agendas. In 2018, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink who oversees assets worth $8.6 trillion and has been called 
the face of ESG, wrote a now infamous letter to CEOs titled A Sense of Purpose that pushed a, quote, new model of governance in line with ESG values. Society is demanding that companies, both public and private, serve a social purpose, Fink wrote. To prosper over time, every company must not only deliver financial performance, but also show how it makes a positive contribution to society. Fink also let it be known that, quote, if a company doesn't engage with the community and have a sense of purpose, it will ultimately lose the license to operate from key stakeholders. And the article goes on. But think about that. They are basically admitting that the state, the regime, will have control over the means of production, over the means of distribution, over the means of what allows you to purchase the products, purchase in quotes, and of course, over the means of information, because they get to censor you too. Oh, how I long for the halcyon days where everyone was telling me I was crazy to talk about global communism. You can't even define communism. Yeah, yeah, sure, I can. In fact, I can define it so clearly that you give me any definition of communism you want, and I will show you how that is what the global regime is intended to produce. And just to wrap all this up and close it down, in relation to where we started, Elon Musk seems to be operating some sort of controlled demolition over Twitter, just as we see a controlled demolition evolving in all sorts of spaces in our society, most particularly the financial space. And I discussed this on Twitter yesterday. We keep being presented with this idea that the Chinese yuan is going to take over the dollar. The dollar is no longer going to be the global reserve currency. And the truth is that it already isn't, or at least functionally isn't. We have reached a point of inevitability. And when you have reached a point where an inevitable future is understood, it is wise to exist as if that inevitable future is already here rather than continue to view your life through this old model that is not going to be at all relevant in the future. So for these CEOs who are trying to rake in the big regime bucks, well, that's not a good strategy when the regime is collapsing and your business is being roundly embarrassed throughout society. You are destroying your entire consumer base on the presumption of a world emerging that is certain not to emerge. And so we're not in a contest between the American dollar and the Chinese yuan as the global reserve currency. I don't think the yuan is going to be the global reserve currency. I think the yuan will be a strong currency among other currencies. And I think the dollar will be as well. So it's not the dollar versus the yuan. It is regime fiat money branded as the American dollar while not in any way being significantly American. Versus the collection of all other currencies, or perhaps only Bitcoin. The phenomenon we're seeing and the phenomenon we can see in everything is centralization versus decentralization. The feudalist communism that is being implemented worldwide is a centralized system. And the more centralized and monopolistic they make that system, the more powerfully they can force the people to participate in that system. 
the more that system is decentralized and people can do what they want, the less powerful the regime becomes. That's the phenomenon we're seeing. That is what we're going to see as we decentralize from the regime fiat dollar as the global reserve currency and move to a collection of all other currencies or some other currencies or potentially the most decentralizable currency, which again is Bitcoin. And so if I'm right about Elon Musk and what Elon Musk is doing, what he's doing comports exactly with that model. Twitter used to be the dominant informational space on the internet. Twitter also was manipulated and regulated and censored so that they could produce the results they wanted to produce. It was a tool of manipulation. The greatest information weapon in the history of the world can change minds. It can change behaviors. It can change ideas. It can start political movements and provide narrative support for the overthrow of countries by the regime. And of course, it can manipulate markets. Again, we can argue all day about what Elon Musk's role is. Say he's a wild card, leave him as a wild card and just focus on the results. The results are that social media, once centralized with a dominant manipulating platform like Twitter, is now becoming decentralized as people move around to other platforms in order to acquire good information within the free market. We can see this phenomenon replicating itself over and over again. We can even see it in geopolitics as countries move away from the regime control into this new multipolar world order. This is what's coming and it's happening in all aspects of society and of life. And it's important to understand it because it is a different paradigm through which to view and analyze the world around us. We don't need to spend our time figuring out who the cool kids are. Oh, he's a white hat. He's a black hat. He's on the good team. He's on the bad team. Oh, I think that guy who is good is now bad. We don't need to do any of that. Just look at the results. Are they tending toward the awakening? Are they tending toward decentralization or are they tending toward the central narrative and the centralization of everything? All that matters is the outcome. I'm not trying to be Elon Musk's friend and figure out if he's going to be a loyal friend and trustworthy. I'm trying to figure out if the things he's doing are producing a better world or not, whether intentionally or unintentionally. I'm not concerned with my value judgment about Elon Musk's character. I care about whether or not our information flows through an open and free market. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon. 
out on the range. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have a catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hot!